You're listening to Longwoods Radio. The following is a Breakfast with the Chiefs session that took place in Vancouver, B.C. in April of 2008. The focus is C-I-H-I, and speaking is Glenda Yates and Graham Scott. Good morning, everybody. Uh, just uh, on this beautiful sunny morning in Vancouver, having spent two very snowy days in Victoria, which I, I, have to, I have to tell you, after like 400 and some odd centimeters of snow in Ottawa this year, seeing snow in April in Victoria is not, is not what you're looking for. Um, but as someone said, well, the winters in Ottawa must be cold, but I, I spent 23 years of my career in Saskatchewan, so, you know, this all, uh, no winter can phase you after those uh, Saskatchewan winters. But it's a pleasure to be here in um, in Vancouver, CIHI is well known to uh, many of you, but it's a chance, uh, Graham and I thought, to just give you a sense of what's new, because uh, I guess CIHI probably didn't exist uh, but to, to, when your grandmothers were alive, but this is not your grandmother's CIHI, is sort of what you would say. It's, uh, it is a changing place, and it's always uh, fun for us to be able to get out and tell people uh, uh, precisely the way in which it's changing. I think this is the little gizmo. There we go. What do you think? Up, down? Yeah, that's the one I'm pressing. Well, you could look at this slide and I could talk, but we could also do that. How about that? Technology is wonderful. I'm sure that will work for someone else. Um, who we are, we're an, I think most people know we're an independent, not-for-profit agency. I think the thing about information is you've got to, it's only useful if people trust it and believe it. And uh, so essentially we have no uh, agenda. We have, uh, we're not funded only by one level of government. We get funding from the provinces, the federal government, from individual hospitals. And we are able to sort of be the voice of comparable information, standardizing information. Uh, we've been in the business now since 1994. And um, we do have a Western office. Anne McFarlane is here from our uh, Western office, which is located in Victoria, because we realize increasingly people want to know our products, they want to know what they can get, and we, need, we actually need some, um, some capacity to uh, respond to those demands locally. Uh, we have now 27 databases and counting. So whereas we used to be all about the dad, you know, acute care data, uh, we still have a predominant acute care focus, just given historical databases, but we are very much trying to augment that, working uh, beyond that to build new databases in the health human resources areas and others. Um, and we've also moved into analytical products. So again, people were saying to us, help us make sense of this data. We don't all have the capacity to understand it. Tell us what's meaningful. So we do a number of analytical products. And we can see that increasingly people um, visit our web website, uh, download PDFs. We had over 5.5 million downloads uh, last year. And the, the average length of time, we also track how long do people stay on the website. And so we can see whether people are just sort of glancing in. But actually, the, the length of stay on our website is actually quite, uh, quite long. Uh, what does success look like for us? It's not good to have all this data if, in fact, no one's using it. So for us, success is actually having the data, having it be comparable, and actually seeing that people are using it in their, um, in their decision-making across the country. So what's new at CIHI? I thought I'd focus on a few areas uh, that are topical. For us, we try. Uh, we're never in a policy mode. We never make policy recommendations. We have no... Uh, uh, voice in that way, but we also try to be policy relevant. If people are trying to make decisions about certain topics, what data can we put forward on those topics that will help in those discussions? So these are just some of the uh, 
the areas that I'm going to touch on briefly this morning. So wait times is obviously a hugely important uh, area of debate and discussion in the country, still has been for some years. We've done a series of reports now on wait times in the last three years. I'm just going to focus a little bit on a couple of them. Elective surgery wait times. Um, so we've uh, put three annual reports, the most recent was this last February, on what do we know in the country about elective surgery wait times. Three years ago, it was a huge challenge to write this report because there wasn't really any data or much data. Um, this year, you can see the enormous leaps we've made in three years in terms of what we can say. It's still not um, uh, the, the state of perfection or ideal that you would like. Um, we can say much more about the priority areas that have been defined. Um, there is considerably more reporting, and what we are able to do is actually put that together and actually say, so why does it look different in you know, Manitoba than it does in BC? Maybe you can understand, is someone counting elective and emergency? Are they counting the start point differently? So while they're not all comparable, and that's that last point, it is still difficult to say, will you wait longer for a hip surgery or a cataract in BC or in Alberta or in you know, uh, Nova Scotia, that's still difficult, but we can put all of that data together and you can actually get some sense of what people are counting, how they're counting it, and then when you see the comparisons, you can make some sense of it. One of the reports we did uh, last year, uh, and this is from that data that we put out in February uh, last year, was a question people were asking is, well, does all this emphasis on the priority areas, is it crowding out the rest of what the health system is supposed to be doing in terms of surgery. This didn't look at times, but it did look at volume. So we looked at that point at 2004-05 when the uh, priority areas were uh, named, and we looked at what was the growth. So what we found last year was that, in fact, the priority areas had gone up. There had been significant increases by about 7% on, if you bundle them together, in the priority areas over the uh, previous year. And that's even after taking, those are, that's in rates. So we know the population got a bit older. You would have expected some more surgeries to take place. And in terms of the overall um, other surgeries, obviously 80% of the surgeries fall outside these areas. They stayed about the same. I think the rate went up by about 2%. People were sort of saying, oh, is it crowding out? Well, in, in the short term, in a very big picture level, it didn't seem to be the case. That doesn't mean it wasn't happening in, in, um, uh, in pockets or in particular jurisdictions. But this is something we're continuing to watch, and we will actually put out an update to this information this June. And the picture is a bit different. So the update will show uh, that it's not, it's not continuing to be quite the same picture, and we'll, we'll look for that um, uh, shortly. One of the things that uh, benchmarks that was set in the, in the waiting times uh, was for hip fractures uh, based on the work of CIHR and others. I think there was an, an understanding that it actually did matter whether we made it within 48 hours in terms of repairing hip fractures. They set a benchmark um, uh, there. And overall in the country, what we know from this data is basically we're at about 65% um, uh, nationally. BC does better than that. There are over 70% in terms of the numbers that are done within two days. We, we don't have waiting times in our databases or, or uh, times that would count it by the hour. So we were able to look at how many people had their surgery uh, for hip fracture same day or next day, and that's what these data reflect. But we can see there again how everyone is, is doing on that particular one. 
Joints have been a, a huge part of the Wait Times initiative, a huge part of the um, priority area, so we did some specific work that we've been doing on joints. We've had a partnership with the uh, um, orthopedic surgeons for some time on a joint replacement registry, so we have uh, over 70% of orthopods across Canada submit data to CIHI. That gives us quite a bit of depth in terms of uh, their patients and what's happening. So we've just had that data now for about 10 years. We did a, a bit of a 10-year trend so that we can see the rates of uh, joint replacements, again, not, not surprising in some, uh, some ways with the technology having changed, the population having uh, aged, but you can see that for both hips and knees, significant increases in that 10-year uh, rate. What we've seen, we looked at, if people are very concerned about costs and efficiency. Uh, we've been tracking here, uh, this is knee replacements. In that period where we saw so many more knee replacements being done in the country, you see a, a change in length of stay on average from seven days to six days. That's very big, obviously, in terms of savings, given the, the numbers of, of um, hip, uh, knee replacements, rather, that are done in the country. And interesting, BC, may, maybe people have been coming here and learning from you or uh, calling up, because BC actually was leading the country, uh, certainly average uh, in 2004-05 and remains so, although the country's closing in. You're, you're teaching them uh, something about length of stay on uh, knee replacement surgery, it, it, would, it would seem, from the data. We also, from the um, uh, Joint Replacement Registry, have data on um, uh, body mass index, so we can look at the relationship of uh, joint replacements to, uh, to the rates of being either um, normal BMI, overweight, or obese. And what we see is that there is a correlation, uh, an association between body mass index and the need for hip and knee replacements. And we also know that there's uh, significant uh, differences between these populations in terms of length of stay, in terms of recovery time, uh, and even uh, replace, uh, revisions, having to have it done again. So. What we can see is there's data here for surgeons and others and administrators to work with to understand uh, to what extent should this be uh, part of our concern given what we know about uh, rising obesity rates um, in the country. We did a, uh, an analysis. We were looking at um, uh, joints again and found something that we thought was unusual and some of the physician members on our board um, thought, uh, physician administrative members thought this was quite powerful. It's a bit puzzling in early days for this kind of analysis, but basically we were looking at elective hips and knees and saying, if you took a population who had an elective hip and knee, what else can we learn about what happens to them as a result of that? And what we learned is if you, uh, the year, if you took their rate of being hospitalized the year before they had the surgery, sort of one in ten of them would have been hospitalized for any reason at all. This is not related to orthopedics necessarily. They have the hospitalization for the, uh, for the replacement. And then if you look at the year following, you find that the rate, particularly for knees, has, has increased significantly. Now, not all of those. We, that, that's all causes of being hospitalized. They're not all because of... There, there are some revisions. We were able to see who, how many people were readmitted for infection or, or revision, and that those are very costly, but they're not... They're, they're, below 2%, but those are significant numbers to, to track. But that we did see that from all causes, you do see a change in pattern of, um, of hospitalization, which you don't see particularly for emergency hips. So there does seem to be, for, for a procedure that we think of as elective, this is if you're, if you're planning uh, a system and you, you want to, you're thinking about we're doing so many more of these targeted surgeries, also useful to understand that there may be other things that need to be worked into the planning as well because there are other implications uh, down the road. When we looked at that, we've been trying to do more with the cost data. We have 
Uh, not in this country, as people know, use the cost, case costing data to the extent we might. So we've been trying to, wherever we can, try to understand, if you think of those additional hospitalizations, what is the cost implication of those using our case costing data, we were able to... Uh, uh, to look at that and, uh, and connect it. So we just see the difference uh, there. And there you do see the revision, um, the revision cost as well. So emergency departments are also an area. We talk about weights for elective surgery, but emergency departments have been an area, I know in British Columbia, certainly in other parts across the country. So we've done a series of reports on emergency departments. Um, this is some of the titles that we've done. What we were able to do... Um, it may seem Ontario-centric, and being originally from the West, I know that that's a very sensitive point. Um, but that's, let, let me be hasten to say that's not a, a bias in approach. It is a bias of the data. So Ontario has mandated uh, the National Ambulatory Care Reporting System. And so we have fabulous data to manage by in Ontario on um, emergency departments. We've, BC is interested. Alberta is interested. Uh, so we're very much working. Uh, Saskatchewan is interested as well. So we're very much other provinces are looking to come on board. We've been doing uh, through Anne's office and some of the work uh, here in BC, some of the, the pilots to understand implementation um, uh, ways forward in British Columbia. But So I hasten to say that we have great data here, uh, uh, but it does tend to be a little bit because at the moment we've got great emergency department data from Ontario. This is by Lynn, so the, the uh, local, their version of regions in Ontario. I, I think you're not allowed to call it regionalization, but I think I could probably safely use that word here. Um, uh, so this is just by hospital. We've looked at the, 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 this is the total time spent. So we can track it by when you were first uh, seen by a physician, what, what was your total weight, and when you were discharged. So we can see the variation. The, the dark portion of the bar is the, time, the median time. So again, it's, it's not only, you don't want to, averages, as we all know in healthcare, are often not very useful. You actually want to know how far is that median patient, how long is that, are they waiting? And you can see that it uh, um, varies there uh, region to region. And then you can also see the total time. Um, and that, and this, is, this is actually the 90th percentile. So we track what 10% of the, the patients are waiting um, at, at that point. So we can actually sort of see uh, it's fine to get some patients, but what about those tough patients, those last ones at the end? How are we doing with those? Um, so we can track this, and individual LINs can take a look at their rates and see who is doing well. Some of We can also look at what are the, the issues. It's perhaps the same here. It tends to be busy emergency departments that have the longer waits, and it's also the teaching hospitals that have the, uh, the longer waits in the Ontario situation. We also can track from um, uh, if someone from an emergency department is a decision is made to admit them, what is the time between that decision to admit and actually getting a bed and getting um, into uh, uh, into the hospital? And we can see we track that again by 10 percent, the median percentile, and the what about those last 10 uh, percent uh, of patients? Um, so we can see that overall, when uh, uh, the average time is about 1.7 hours. Um, the median time in, uh, in Ontario, or this is actually all of Canada with the exception of Quebec, because this comes from a different database. But you can also see that there are people waiting, 10% um, of patients are waiting on average sort of longer than 15 hours uh, between that time to admit overall. And again, you can see the, the variation, particularly between small hospitals and, uh, and teaching hospitals. This is the ambulatory care sensitive condition um, data from last year, so this is, this is not the upcoming data, but it will give you a sense of this. So these are conditions that if we were managing well uh, in the community should be things that are not hospitalized very often. So these are, there's a set of conditions that have been uh, 
tested for this, but they include things like high blood pressure, asthma, diabetes. If we're, if we're doing a good job of managing those in the, um, in the community, we should not see admissions for these into hospitals. So a high rate on this indicator is, um, is, is a sign that we could be doing better. So low is better. You'll see that the national average is 389. And again, you see British Columbia does very well on this indicator. You have the lowest um, uh, ambulatory care sensitive condition admission. So in, in a sense, fewer preventable or uh, hospitalizations are occurring. They're not all preventable, but on average, uh, one would want to see this number lower in British Columbia than elsewhere in the country. But we also realize a lot about reporting depends on what level you report. So we could all sit back and say, well, there's no work to be done in British Columbia. This is actually, these are the numbers of the health regions across the country for which we reported this last year. We'll be reporting for slightly more this year. But what you can see is the, the, the blue sort of test tube looking uh, bars, those are the British Columbia regions. So you can see why the average for British Columbia is in fact uh, low because there are a number of regions who are the lowest in the country. But there also are a number of regions in British Columbia for which this, they, they, they are higher. And again, it's really by able to, when you get your number just by yourself, even if you looked at it perhaps in conjunction with your, the others in your province, you don't have that sense of, could I be doing better? Uh, I think the real value of comparable data is that you can actually understand, are there regions that are like me that are doing, um, doing better on this, uh, this indicator? So again, drilling down and doing it by region we think uh, is quite helpful. But in some cases, drilling it down to the facility level is even more powerful. And I'm going to—that's the, the ex example that I'm going to use now, which is the hospital standardized mortality ratio, or HSMR, as we know it. Um, so HSMR is an indicator that we put out for the first time last November, uh, and it looks at trying to track over time avoidable deaths in hospitals to reduce them. It's a, it's, a, uh, it's a patient safety measure. Anton was talking at the outset about the interest in patient safety. Post Baker Norton, there was a lot of interest of how do we know how we are doing? You've heard of the 100,000 Lives campaign here, uh, the, campaign, uh, the campaign in the U.S., but the 100,000 Lives campaign there. Um, what measure? This is the kind of measure that they've used in the U.S. to track how are we doing, how are we saving, saving those lives. So with that, the, um, it's, a, it's, an, it's an overall measure. It was developed in, in the UK by Sir Brian Jarman. It's used uh, in a number of places. The US, as I mentioned in their campaign, uh, the UK has been publishing this uh, by hospital for some years now. Uh, Sweden and the, the Netherlands use it as well. People say, well, how meaningful is it to track deaths? It's obviously a very, um, uh, 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 well, it's a very uh, large outcome. It's a very unusual outcome. Many patient safety uh, events would, would not be recognized in death. Um, but in fact, what, what people have learned is it is something that you can track when you do patient safety improvements. People can actually see this indicator move as a result of those. Um, and it, it, it's certainly not the only measure you would want in your patient safety initiative. There would be many others, and some of them are more targeted, the post-30-day stroke and heart ones that I mentioned before. But this does give you an overall measure, a, a single, a, sometimes called a big dot measure, to be able to track over time. It basically looks at, sometimes people say, well, of course, more people would die in this hospital because the patients are sicker. And just to, to give a sense of... Um, we, we all understand that patients will die in hospitals because of the nature of the business that we are in. And it's certainly not that these are deaths that could all be prevented. But the notion is that we will 
track a patient, sort of an 85-year-old patient who has these comorbidities, who is admitted, and look at their experience to all other 80, compared to all other 85-year-old patients with those same comorbidities across the country. So then if you have more of those kinds of patients, again, you're not penalized because you deal with sicker patients. It's simply because what would you expect that group of patients to do relative to the Canadian average? Um, so it is simply a comparator. It is not, there's no... There's no benchmark that is an absolute. Over time, the comparator also, uh, also moves. Um, basically, it's a, one of its values is a fairly easy measure to interpret. So if it's equal to 100, basically that would be at the, at the national average. More than 100, then the mortality rate would be higher than the national average and lower than, uh, or higher than 100, I'm sorry, would be uh, higher than the average rate and lower is, uh, is uh, lower than the average rate. What it's not is a measure of preventable deaths, so there should be no sense that all of these deaths could be prevented. This is a measure of, over time, how are we doing in a given facility. It is uh, not a perfect measure for comparisons. We do everything we can in the data to standardize like patients and compare them to like patients across the country. But uh, we know that there will be some limitations in that. There will be some differences in the way patient flow is handled, how services are, are organized. Not all of those can be captured. We try to capture all that we can. But for an individual hospital, it should give you a good sense of how are you improving over time and how are you comparing to, to others who might be improving uh, at, a, at a more rapid rate, for example. And it's certainly not the only measure you need. It is indeed a big dot measure. It gives you one measure to follow. There will be all sorts of opportunities for digging down. Um, we did publish this in November by individual hospital. I'm not going to go into that here, but just to give you a sense of what the... Um, the overall findings were, the good news is uh, uh, morta standardized mortality is falling. That means we're doing better overall. So in the three-year period, it fell by about 6% uh, nationally. We also could tar uh, look at target patient groups. So it was falling um, among heart attack patients. It was also falling among patients with uh, pneumonia, but not as quickly. We also could see that for some groups of patients, it actually wasn't falling. So even though the overall rate was falling, uh, for those with COPD or septicemia, we didn't see that result. And in fact, that gives people a sense of, is there something here that we could be drilling, drilling down on? And again, we could look at which groups of patients uh, tended to have higher, um, higher uh, uh, chances of, uh, of uh, uh, dying in our hospitals, or higher odds, rather. And we could also see the trends over time, and we can see the trends um, uh, across the country. So we published it by hospital with their three-year rate. We've been validating the measure for some time with hospitals. Interesting in terms of the, um, the pickup, I, I would say, you know, someone had, uh, when I was last in BC, said, gee, this, this didn't have much effect here. I don't know if it's having much play. In Ontario, it was very, you know, people are working very hard with it. The Ontario Hospital Association is working very hard to work with their members to have workshops. We held an HSMR workshop here in BC, have done that in Alberta, Saskatchewan, trying to get uh, people uh, understanding and delving down and learning from others about how they might use the measure. Mental health and homelessness. I wouldn't want you to think that we only deal with the health services data. We obviously have a great deal of data there, but we also do have a population health stream of our work, and I think it's a fundamentally important stream and one that we uh, certainly intend to continue. We did a report, uh, we were doing a series of focused reports now on mental health. There'll be another one that comes out shortly on mental health in the criminal justice system. But this one looked at mental health and homelessness. And uh, 
basically try to pull together uh, uh, what we know about homelessness in Canada and mental health, uh, pulling together all of the uh, different uh, pieces of information we have about that across the country. And we were also able to link in some cases to our own databases to see if there were new analyses that we could do uh, there. And we did, in fact, find uh, some differences we think would be relevant in terms of planning and understanding this population. So just a couple of examples from that uh, work that we did. Um, when you look at emergency department visits for the homeless versus um, uh, the, the overall population, very different. Uh, so we see, again, mental and behavioral disorders are over a third of the emergency department visits for the homeless or for that reason. That doesn't even appear in the top five reasons uh, in the general population in terms of... Uh, of uh, uh, going to an emergency department. So again, for planning, this is very helpful, and for understanding this population and their needs, because they are quite different. Um, in terms of inpatient hospitalization, again, uh, over half of the um, uh, inpatient admissions for the homeless are, in fact, uh, with mental diseases and disorders, um, and then significant trauma being the second. Very different than the overall population um, uh, and the reasons for admission overall. So what's coming at CIHI, and I'm going to keep this fairly short, but we've just done a national consultation um, last fall, so I was out here in British Columbia at that point, really confirming people are telling us we have three business lines fundamentally. We're about data, we're about turning that data into analysis and information, and we're about helping people to use that data and understand it. So in terms of the data, we do have more databases coming. Uh, people have been flagging for us the, 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 database, the data needs they have, and so we're trying to understand if we can fill those. Um, we're closest on home care and long-term care. Obviously, with an aging population, these are growing, um, uh, growing uh, areas of interest for planning, for understanding uh, expenditures and other things. Um, analysis and information, we're trying to, again, drill down, make sure we can make the information as useful at a local level as we can. Um, and in terms of understanding and use, we uh, are trying to provide people with the tools to use the data, to use it themselves, uh, to make sure that they can, um, uh, can use it in their daily work. I'll just cut, touch briefly on a few things. Home care data, we're fairly far along. This was a priority that was really raised by British Columbia a number of years ago. All provinces are interested in having good home care data. So we are on the verge. We've built a, a national system, developed the standards, and in fact, we now have uh, data coming in from uh, British Columbia and the Yukon. We have some data in Manitoba, others. We are getting test data now from Alberta. So we are very close to starting to have the ability to look at home care um, in a national sense. Um, we're always looking at new indicators, patient safety. People have said to us, what can you do? Is there anything you can do in terms of a big dot measure that's outside of acute care? What about patient safety in home care, long-term care? What can we do uh, there? Um, uh, as well, at looking at some, as we have these new databases, we, as we have a new drug database, you may have seen the report we put out on drug use and seniors in terms of appropriate prescribing. We start to have more um, ability to actually uh, put a focus on some new areas. And obviously, as we get the home care and long-term care databases, uh, there'll be new possibilities there. In terms of giving people tools, we think we can provide some reports that, that focus on issues people are interested in. But obviously, if people have a tool where they themselves can customize and craft and look at 
uh, more recent data, uh, perhaps even quarterly or monthly data that, that's more recent, uh, and actually do the comparators they're looking at, whether you're looking at a very particular type of uh, portion in a hospital and saying, how does this compare to... Uh, uh, to peers across the country. We've built a, a portal that will allow people, those who submit data to us, to actually be able to query it and answer those kinds of questions. So we're just rolling that out uh, now. Uh, we think, obviously, the electronic health record, which is coming, is going to be huge in terms of increasing the amount of data that we could uh, have in this country for managing, for uh, uh, making decisions. Certainly, we think that will be true at, at the clinical interface, so in first primary care. But also, I think we realize that there will be a tremendous ability if we, if we think about standardizing certain elements and putting all the appropriate privacy protections in place to actually use some of that data uh, in a probably a de-identified uh, de way, certainly only certain elements, but to allow us to, to understand more about how to run, how to manage, how to plan the system as well, as well as providing that kind of population health perspective that can help us improve patient care in that way. So to summarize, before I turn it over to Graham, we've got more data than we've ever had, and there is more on the way. Uh, we have more analytical tools, reports that are available, hopefully to try to help people understand the power of the data and to flag for them some things that in everyone's busy life in healthcare, uh, delivering care, they may not have had a chance to, uh, to uh, examine and find for themselves. And also we're trying to ensure that the products and the services reach the people who need them and that we give them the tools to use this in their everyday life. And that's what's new and what's coming at CIHI. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Graham. Just going to take half a minute and just introduce Graham for a second. I've known Graham for many, many years, and uh, just by way of background, Graham's a lawyer who, uh, with a large, uh, one of these very large national firms, and he was chair of that firm for many years. But he, during that whole career, he was always involved in policy. He was always at Queen's Park or in Ottawa or somewhere. So just in the last couple of years, I think the law practice is sort of in the, in the back seat now, and Graham is very involved. And being chair of CIHI is, is not strange to him at all. He's been chair of just about every major organization, I think, <laughs> when it comes to health care, and for good reason. He obviously does a great job. So, uh, so Graham sort of sets that uh, policy context to wherever he is, and we're delighted here that he can be part of the CIHI presentation today. <coughs> Thank you, Anton. Uh, good morning, everybody. Um, I'm really delighted to uh, to have spent the last five days in uh, in Vancouver and uh, and Victoria. And of course, the real reason for that is that uh, uh, I'm a salt water junkie. I was <coughs> born, brought up, and uh, and uh, spend as much of my time as I can in uh, in Nova Scotia. But it's always nice to see what the other salt water is like. And you know, it's not that bad. So anyway, it's uh, it's been an absolute uh, delight to uh, uh, to make one of my uh, my visits uh, visits out here. Um, what I'm going to do is uh, will be helpful to those of you who are PowerPoint challenged, uh, because I'm working strictly off a, a text, and um, uh, I will repeat for emphasis some of those things that uh, our staff particularly worry at times that we don't get clear to everybody. So. Uh, if you missed it with uh, Glenda, I hopefully will uh, will cover it off as well. So I think you know that our real role at uh, CIHI is to be an objective source of information, and that role, is, as Glenda has been pointing out, is is evolving. And uh, the real importance of it, of course, is if this information is used effectively, it should make a real difference in the way we uh, we uh, deal with healthcare in Canada. 
So the role of uh, CAIHI's Board of Directors uh, is to provide governance and, uh, and guidance to the organization. Now, as Glenda touched on, we're a bit of an unusual entity. We're not decision makers, we're not policy makers, and we're not a federal agency. We have representatives from uh, all provinces and territories, federal representatives, representatives from non-governmental uh, health groups. So, for example, from uh, British Columbia, we, uh, until a, a recent resignation, we had uh, three from British Columbia uh, on our 16-member uh, uh, board. And we currently have uh, Howard Waldner, who's the CEO of the Vancouver Island Health Authority, and Gordon McAtee, the deputy minister. And uh, we have an office, uh, as Glenda pointed out, in, uh, in Victoria that Anne McFarlane is, uh, is running. And uh, this is very much part of a, of, a, of a very strong approach that we've adopted to make sure that we strengthen our, our educational capacity, our information gathering capacity, and our identification of interest capacity uh, around the country. So obviously it's pretty obvious what we do. We collect information, we analyze it, and report it. Uh, <clears throat> but the real truth is when it comes to what saves lives, databases, analysis, and reports, unfortunately, are not immediately what comes to most people's mind. Um, <clears throat> and when dollars are scarce, as we know they are in the healthcare system. Um, they're scarce in boom times, and they're particularly scarce in non-boom times. Uh, <clears throat> and surprisingly enough, when this happens, uh, information is not always at the top of the political agenda. It seems, uh, and perhaps quite understandably, that it it's, um, makes for a much greater ministerial photo op to, uh, to cut a ribbon in front of a, uh, of a new wing or a... Uh, or in front of a great crane uh, instead of a uh, computer. But, you know, we, we, we have to deal with that and we have to work hard to let people understand just how fundamental information is to health, particularly as our whole system gets more and more complicated, and how much it can actually do to improve and maintain a uh, health system, and what it can mean to health professionals, decision makers, and uh, indeed the general public in effectively uh, utilizing our system. So what we are attempting to do is go beyond just collecting, analyzing, and reporting. We're actually quite passionate about information. Why? Because we, we, we're beginning to see after uh, 10 years of real emphasis and growth, which, uh, which Glenda's just gone through with you, just how much power there is to improve the quality of health. We've seen the power of information to provide clinicians with data and insights and therefore be able to make necessary adjustments to improve the care that they provide to their patients. We've seen the power of information to provide healthcare leaders, CEOs of hospitals, heads of regional health authorities and clinical department heads to have the data to work with to help them make much more sound decisions. And we've seen the power of comparable data indicators uh, to serve as road signs leading people to ask, how are we doing? Can we be doing better? And as the, one of the slides that, uh, that Glenda put up on, uh, on BC, let's call the other guys and find out why they're below the line and we're above the line and see if there's something we can, uh, we can learn to, uh, to improve things. 
And we've seen the power of information to inform the community and government leaders. And the public is beginning to see the power of information, which is kind of the other side of the equation, because healthcare has always been a totally top-down kind of organization. The authority was at the top and the patients obeyed the authority. We're now seeing this begin to radically shift uh, as patients get information. Uh, unfortunately, they get a lot of bad information as well as good information, and that makes it, from our perspective, even more important uh, that we continue to, uh, to strengthen uh, the quality information so that uh, we can make sure that the, the public is working from good information and uh, not bad. But we do have the ability to inform the public on how the system is performing, where the money goes, and the kind of changes that lead to, uh, to better health. And we can do all this with the trust of Canadians because we've taken care to safeguard privacy so that individual Canadians know that the information we're working from uh, uh, is not a threat at all to their privacy. And in order for our information to be powerful as we proceed, we must always ask ourselves some so what questions. So what if there's data available? So what if we can produce nice reports? So then what should our information look like? Well, first of all, it has to be accurate. And it needs, secondly, to be relevant. It needs to be comprehensive. It should be accessible. And, of course, most importantly, it's got to be actionable, assuming we've met the previous four requirements. So our information must be accurate. We spend a lot of time making sure our information is the best information possible. And in the world of health information, Data is not useful unless we can trust that it's comparable. This means, obviously, that when we calculate indicators, we calculate them in the same way across the country. A lot of what we do is hidden. We develop standards for data collection. We make sure the methodology is tried and tested, that the standards are applicable to all jurisdictions and facilities, and we carefully validate that data by scrutinizing it to make sure it's accurate and comparable. That's really an essential part of what we do. You may be familiar with this from a British Columbia perspective, for example, uh, <clears throat> because originally we discovered that mortality levels in BC hospitals could not be reported in our national indicators for some years because of difference in policies and coding between BC hospitals and the hospitals in the other provinces. Our data quality challenge was consequently identified by our analysts in, in 2000, and the BC ministry took action and changed the policy. That new policy came into effect in 2002, and BC data since then has been totally comparable to the other provinces. Crucial for you to be able to look at uh, experiences elsewhere and, and uh, make, uh, make changes or, uh, <coughs> um, or for the other provinces to be able to pick up positive things that have happened in British Columbia uh, to, to improve their, uh, their data. And uh, so it's been a key part of our national indicators report since 2006. So I said our information also has to be relevant. So we have the capacity to produce a lot of an analysis and reports. And as you can see from Glenda's summary, we are radically increasing the, the numbers of those reports. But those reports have to be connected to the needs of our uh, stakeholders. So we work on areas that are identified by our shareholders or stakeholders, our board, 
and uh, <coughs> our strategic analysts and work out those priority areas and concentrate on such things as you've seen, like emergency departments, wait time, patient safety, mental health, and many more. But it also has to be comprehensive. <coughs> In our sector, we've traditionally had a lot of information around acute care. But to paint a more complete picture of care, we need to look at other aspects of the health system. Our stakeholders in a number of provinces share this view and have encouraged us to take steps in this direction. For example, BC is now a leader in a drive for creating a comprehensive database for home care and is now reporting information in home care. And as Glenda pointed out, that has now uh, uh, attracted the uh, effective interests of the other province, so we're, provinces, so we're pretty close to having... Uh, what I think has been a very important missing element in, in our data, that is a really good look at uh, home care across the country. Our stakeholders have also expressed concern about the need for us to fill a number of remaining inf information gaps. So we'll be exploring how we might address the need for information on primary health care. We've already done a lot of work in trying to uh, get uh, the indicators down to a workable, uh, a workable number from I think a million did we start with, uh, but in any event, uh, uh, this is quite a challenge, and uh, as with all data, and given the tests that we have to meet, it takes a while to uh, pull this stuff together. So a number of issues still need to be worked out about the future, about standardization, privacy, and, uh, and other pol similar policies, for instance. There's a real opportunity for us as a country to explore new ways of collecting valuable and, uh, and powerful data. Uh, the development of the electronic health records, the EHR holds particular promise to enable clinicians, researchers, and other health professionals <coughs> and health system administrators to have a more complete and integrated information system. But we have to be vigilant about this because when most people think of EHR, they do not think of the, se what, what we, I hate using the word secondary uses, uh, but they don't think of the secondary uses, which you can imagine are crucial absolutely crucial to us and the whole power of EHR to really help any, anything more than the individual patient will be lost without the secondary use. The secondary use obviously meaning our ability to mine that information so that we know what's going on in the system, we know what's going on in the population and then can turn it around so that it not only helps the one individual uh, better navigate the system but it provides an opportunity for us to provide the feedback and the information that lets the system be properly uh, managed. Our information needs to be actionable. What good would our information do if it couldn't be used to improve patient care, improve population health and efficiency and effectiveness of the system? Our stakeholders need to be able to access and use our information to improve policy and care in their own areas of responsibility. Uh, as Glenda pointed out, in the fall of 2007, we put out the uh, HSMR. And as Glenda also pointed out, uh, it's one more important tool for safety in, uh, in patient care. But let me share you just one example <coughs> of how the tool has uh, already been used in an actionable sense in the province of New Brunswick. Uh, and this was before we published the results. As you know, we worked on it for three years to... Uh, uh, to get it refined, and that also provided an opportunity for uh, a lot of improvement to take place in the hospitals as they worked with it and tried to better understand its, uh, its application. But after reviewing their HSMR results, government officials in New Brunswick 
started to dig deeper into what might have been contributing both within and outside the hospitals, uh, some of their hospital mortality rates. And what, one of the things they discovered was that the feeding practices of patients with dementia was an issue, and they acted quickly. Patients who accidentally inhale food or liquids can end up with a lung infection that can be fatal. And because of the data attained through HSMR, New Brunswick was able to track down op <coughs> the opportunities to improve feeding practices for patients with dementia who had trouble uh, swallowing. The fact is there are so many positive ways in which health information is transforming the system and the lives of Canadians. But as we learn more about the power of information, and we've made enormous strides in the last couple of decades, some real challenges remain. Granted, some of these challenges just simply come with the job, but some of them we set for ourselves because we're committed to what we do, and we've challenged ourselves to continue to improve. So we will continue to work on producing more relevant data and to continue to monitor and enhance its quality. We'll produce more high-quality analysis and make sure they're relevant to what you do. We'll develop new tools and, uh, and mechanisms to enable our stakeholders to better understand the use of information. Why? Because data and information that CHI-HI produces is of little value if you're not using it to improve health and support management and the delivery of health care. We all have a responsibility. It's up to us to be informed about health, to make full use of health information potential, and to improve patient care and uh, quality of services. So those are my quick non-PowerPoint remarks. At least I thought they were quick. You probably found them rather long. Um, in any event, we'd be delighted to deal with uh, uh, questions or just any discussion. Thank you, Graham. Um, I, I'm going to make an offer uh, almost right away. We, we cannot publish enough information that comes from CIHI. Um, I mean, the, the data come from CIH, comes from CIHI. CIHI does set the context, makes data and information. But to turn it into knowledge or, or information that you can use and makes a huge difference, uh, it, it takes people in the system to do that. So certainly Longwoods invites you to submit material. We could not get enough of it, and we will publish all of it with only one condition, that it passes past our editors. Um, and a lot of this stuff, if it relates to CIHI, we can now pass by an editor who lives in Denmark, so you know what the benchmark is. <laughs> <laughs> so any questions? <coughs> for either Glenda or Graham. Go ahead, uh, Charlotte. Blatt from BBC. Uh, I wonder if both of you could uh, comment on um, the, what, what you feel is the appetite for public reporting of data. And, you know, I think that Kaihai has moved into an area. How much um, interest is there from both the Canadian public and from uh, decision makers to push this agenda? Well, I think there, there is a lot of interest, perhaps led by the media. I mean, to, uh, and what we can see is that when you're trying to explain uh, to someone in the media why we don't have this, or, you know, I, I remember an interview I did with the Toronto Star, and they were sort of saying, so you've got all this data, why can't patients have it? Don't patients have a right to know this? And I said, well, the data is useful. We, we, will, we put it out when it actually is meaningful, so we'll... You know, we put out an Ontario hospital reports in conjunction with the province where you can actually see a tremendous amount of information by hospital named. Um, and there was a real appetite for that. And 
I think the evidence would show that individual consumers don't use it that much. You know, that it tends to be, uh, they want to know that it's there. They want, if you're hiding it, they're suspicious. I mean, this is a day and age where people expect to be able to see that. They may not personally find they have the time, but they, they may actually um, rely on the media to filter some of it for them. And, and it's clear, I think, that professionals uh, use it to improve their own practice. Can I just follow that up to say, to ask a question about, you know, the acceptance to which there's professional acceptance for the public and, and support for reporting to the public on these issues? Because I, it seems to me that some yeah. of our challenges have really fallen into that area. I think it's fair. I mean, it's a big, complex business, so you're always worried that someone will take data and use it inappropriately. Um, and you can imagine this was a huge issue for HSMR, you know, that, uh, but, but I think what was helpful when you see that the UK has been doing this, you do get some misinterpretation. We worked very hard, just to use that example, to make sure that the press understood the measure. And overall, I was actually quite pleased with the quality of the reporting, that they, I'm not saying everything they reported was accurate, but more or less, I think they understood it. I think as time goes on, what you saw in the UK is, by the year five that you're putting it out, it's just kind of business as usual. This is information. What you see with the Ontario Hospital reports, there's a lot of information. We've been in discussions in British Columbia to see if there's an interest in doing a, a, an analogous report here. It's, it's a very powerful tool. And over time, people get used to it. I think initially the professionals are worried that people will misinterpret it and that they'll be judged. But I, my own view is it's a force that is... is uh, Relentless. I mean, I think the public, there is no appetite in this day and age for a sort of closed door paternalistic approach. So I think we want to do it well, we want to do it carefully, we want to do it responsibly, but I don't think that there's any turning, turning back. Yeah. <coughs> this is a very topical matter, and, and the board has had uh, uh, a couple of full discussions about it, but the bottom line of the board is that this is really public information in the final analysis and we don't know how as an organization we can say to people you're not entitled to this level of information. That said, um, we have not been traditionally, except through our formal reports, we've not traditionally been, been dealing with the public. So we still have to develop uh, and we are developing some, uh, some policies around it. Um, because of course if you go in and use some of our information selectively, uh, <laughs> it can give exactly the wrong information. So we have to be very careful uh, that we have a, a, an effective set of rules around the utilization of information. So that's what we're working on now, but the policy decision's been made. We are in a very human world. So when we put up reports that say, BC leads the nation in X, you would not be surprised to know the BC government will be whatever political strife it may be at any particular point in time, will be delighted out of its tree. However, if we put up something that says the BC government or the BC hospitals are at the bottom of the list on this particular category, surprisingly enough, they don't take exactly the same approach. And this is true of all governments, so I'm not, <laughs> not picking on BC. And uh, so, you know, th there's also at the political level some, uh, some degree of nervousness and uh, HSMR was a good example. There were some provinces that were saying, oh golly, I mean, you know. And, uh, and yet, interestingly enough, uh, when it came out, some provinces uh, uh, leapt on it 
and became, uh, became quite aggressive about it. Hospitals that hadn't reported or were using some excuse uh, for delaying the report or whatever the case may be. So uh, uh, these are issues that, uh, that we have to work through. But the bottom line is the board believes that this, uh, this, is, uh, this is public information and we are devising uh, the policies to, uh, to be able to make sure that uh, intelligent inquiries are responded to in an intelligent manner that preserves the principles that I was talking about earlier, and particularly the principle of, uh, of accuracy. Well, that, my answer would be, yes, it's accessible. If you ask researchers, they would probably give you a, a less robust or less enthusiastic answer. It, it takes time for us, and it's partly been a capacity issue, because if people typically want specific cuts of data. Um, and we do try our best to make it available if we have a privacy. Obviously, the first piece is uh, making that through a privacy assessment. Uh, but if we can deal with small cell sizes and all of those sorts of things, um, we also will try to give data researchers some assurance that the, the data can actually answer the question they're looking at because while we are uh, very much involved in standardizing the data over time, what we will know is, well, in, you know, in this year Manitoba switched from ICD-9 to ICD-10 and they, that was a different year than the year New Brunswick did, so trending data over time. So we will try to help people understand uh, to what extent this can can be used for those purposes. But in general, we, we do uh, make it available to researchers with those kinds of caveats. Can it, can it answer their question and can it uh, be done? We have a cost, so there's usually a cost for, for doing those cuts. Um, but in general, we, we do work with researchers uh, in that way. And our goal would be to, uh, to make sure that they have timely access to our data. I think one of the criticisms would have been uh, that that process can be a lengthy one, and it's just partly been in terms of prioritization. But we're uh, we're setting ourselves some service standards now. We've made we've said we we want to set ourselves a goal for uh, for letting researchers know how quickly they can expect to use it. And we actually track one of our metrics that we would report to the board is um, researcher use. You know, how many times does our data get quoted? Not in our reports, but actually in in the um, in the literature. And what we see is, in fact increasing in quite robust use of our data. So we also, that's one of the things we're, we hope to be uh, monitoring. Go ahead. There was a big uh, white gap in your map uh, where Quebec sits. I wonder where it are. It used to be that Quebec data held everything up three years or whatever it was, but now it's blank all together. Where are you? That was on home care, so I would want to give you a more, a more positive Picture. So Quebec has actually joined uh, CAIHAI, or LISUS as it would be to them, uh, which is a great, uh, a, a great uh, move forward. We always had some Quebec data, but uh, we're, we've just negotiated our second bilateral agreement with Quebec. So they are very keen to be part of our, they're on our board, they, they participate in the discussions, and they've now moved to ICD-10. So a big focus for us in the last number of years was translating all the tools into 
Quebec French, uh, which was, I've, I learned some lessons about medical terminology in the French tool that I would have not had any idea of before. But anyway, we've helped uh, the, the conversion in Quebec. So they are starting to collect data on ICD-10. There is still some, um, we also made a policy decision not to hold the rest of the country up, but we will report the Quebec indicators uh, for the years in which we have it. And increasingly, as we get more data into ICD-10, they will be increasingly comparable. They don't use the MIS data, so the financial data, they've not on the same system, but right now we're doing a mapping project with them because they have a specific tool and we're working to map that against the MIS. So increasingly there will be um, uh, other fields, not only in acute care and ICD-10, but in other areas as well where we can, we can map. So it's never as easy, um, but uh, they're committed and we're committed to, uh, to making sure we have comparable data in Quebec wherever we can. So we're, uh, we're making good progress. We've actually been quite pleased. Because obviously it's another 20% of the country. And some, I don't know about your experience here, but when I was in Saskatchewan, you always find that maybe it's the language barrier, but we never really knew as much of the lessons of Quebec. And they have some great lessons to teach us. If, uh, so I think, uh, I think there's some real opportunities with them. Time's up. And I want to just do a, a quick ad for the e-conference, which is coming here the first week of May. And just to give you a little tidbit of what's coming, Ida Goodrow, the great industrialist, is going to debate Alan Hudson, the great neurosurgeon, on what to do about the e-health record. Ida is going to argue that we need to get the consumer involved and it should all be consumer-driven. And Alan is going to argue, let's get the product working and let's get this thing so that we as healthcare providers are satisfied and then we'll worry about rolling it out to the consumer should be a very good debate. So I invite you to go to the health conference. Uh, we thank you very much for coming, Glenda and Graham. Uh, on behalf of the members in the audience, uh, we're making a donation uh, to the Atlantic Salmon Federation. That would be Graham. And, and to the United Way, that would be Glenda. Thank you for coming to Breakfast with the Chiefs. This has been Longwoods Radio, your healthcare source for ideas, new policies, and best practices.